had, looking back through my life, a lot of, and you might know what I'm talking about when I say this, the searching for God chats. You had any of them when you're engaged with people? I mean, I've had them, I've had them pastorally. Pompous thing saying it, Pastor. I've had them as a pastor the last. Past, I've had them pastorally as the last. Yes, lots of gospel chats, lots, lots of searching for God uh, chats. But I've had them right throughout, right throughout my life when I look back. And there's a bunch of answers, or a bunch of go-to places um, that you go to, as you would. Um, so you go to things like creation. You say, you know, isn't it in the argument something like, you know, how can, how, can, how can we exist in this space where we've got air to breathe? You know, look how big our solar system is, and yet we are provided for wonderfully. Or we look at the beauty of creation. You look at a mountain and you go, well, how can, how can we have something as, as, you know, really, this is just a big lump of rock that gets in my way, and yet I look at it and I go, that's a beautiful thing. And we look at creation and we see God, and that's kind of how the argument goes. Or you can have the right and the wrong argument. Do you know what I mean? Where does this thing, where does right and wrong come from? Why do we have right and wrong? And if that doesn't work, you go, well, we've got this thing. You know, some people say there is evil in the world. Where do we get this idea of, of evil from? So you go down these roads. One of the roads that we don't go to, so I... These are the places I go. I try and find a, you know, a contemporary way to sort of push at buttons to get people to engage with the idea of God when I'm in the street. Reluctant sometimes to say the name of Jesus or the cross. And yet, when the Bible wants to reveal God to us, if you read the sort of flow of the Bible, it takes us where? To the story of the cross. So that's, that's where we're going to go to resolve the gospel stripped back. 101, 101 ways we could, we could control, and I like good ways. It's good to shuffle at foundations. It's good to get people to think about why there might be a God. But God's word takes us to this uncomfortable place. It is an uncomfortable place, isn't it? Sometimes in front of the cross. And yet God's word would take us there. And Mark as we've sort of followed through his story, he's really only been heading to one place to reveal who God is. And so Mark, in his stripped back, concise way, gives us three witnesses. Maybe you noticed the three different people groups that were there, three different guys. Joseph of Arimathea, the centurion, and wonderfully, brilliantly, poignantly, purposefully, this group of women that stand by Jesus' side. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be really kind of quick, and I'm gonna be because I want you to remember what I'm saying, and I'm going to be kind of simple, but we're going to bob through these three witnesses, and they're each going to tell us something, because Mark, Mark is concise. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just waffle his way through a story. He's stripping this back as much as he can, and he's getting right to the point. And we know that there's loads of people saw the resurrection. The other Gospels tell us that, and yet Mark goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you with three people to think about. So the centurion, the women, and Joseph of Arimathea. So I've got a point on each. So if you can hang on to that, then that would be really cool. And hopefully, as we sort of go through these three witnesses, and I don't know where you are with this faith thing. I don't, I don't, I don't know what the story is with you, but they're going to remind us why, why, this, why this 
this cross story, I think is true. I think Mark's picked these witnesses to say, I want you to realize why this story is true, but I also want you to know why it makes things better. So that's where I'm going to hope that we are by the end of this story. It's all about the cross. So first guy, the Roman centurion. And here's point number one. The cross is good news, and it's a little bit... I've used bigger words than are, than are comfortable for my vocabulary, but I'm trying to stretch. I'm trying to be a better human being. I'm trying to stretch myself. So hang on to, to point number one. The cross is good news because it transforms institutionalized humans through love. People that, people that know me in my days at the mill would spit in my face if I came out with a sentence like that, but that's where I'm headed. The cross is good news because it transforms institutionalized humans through love. Love. I think we live in a world now where we've got, we exist in this time and space, 21st century UK, where we've got systems of thinking, flows of thought, patterns of life that should really deter anybody away from faith. We live in a world, you know, maybe there's, and I don't want to beat up on science. Um, because I'm thankful for my big TV, and I'm thankful for paracetamols, and I'm thankful for having a phone that means I don't need a very good memory in my mind to be able to remember everything. I'm thank- and I'm, this is not a beat up on science, but there is this kind of meta-narrative of science that, that sort of flows through the whole world and sort of shapes how we see everything. And it's like I say, I'm not beating up on science, but it leaves us in a spot where if you watch any, you know, the, all the big voices, and all the opinions and all the conclusions don't leave a whole heap of room for God. And if you're a Christian parent and you see your kids going to school, they're going to come back with questions every single week because the shape of the world that they're in makes finding God in it really hard. The patterns of life that we lead, the institutions that we exist in, the make it really tricky for us to see God. The, just, the, just the pace of life that we all live. Just the fact that we've got... No, like we can't, I watched somebody the other day, in fact I increasingly see people who can't leave their car to get to the place they're going without, and I'm the same, without using their phone. We can't have, there's no gaps, is there, anymore in our life. We just, we have to fill every single bit of life up with something. All, all of the flow of our life, I would say, makes it really tricky to see who God is. We looked at a verse a couple of weeks ago. Remember we looked at the story of the rich young ruler and how he was, how he was kind of, he kept all God's laws and he was really keen to see God and find his kingdom, and yet, yet he couldn't find it. And Jesus said something that was pertinent to him, but it should, really like, it should really click with us. He said, it's easier for a camel. Remember this? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And one of the things that we wrestled with is that as citizens of the UK, we're amongst the 5% wealthiest people in the world. What Jesus is saying when he gave us this example, when he used this illustration of a tiny eye of a needle and a huge, big, ugly camel, what he's saying is this, getting, finding God, understanding the kingdom of God, is going to take a miracle for you. It's going to take a miracle for you. Living in this climate, and we can sort of throw it on all of us here today, living in the rich UK, living in our institutions, it's going to take a miracle for us to see God. And yet, this is the thing I want us to think about. And yet... Living in 21st century UK, with the institution of our way of thinking, people still, in their ones and twos, in their hundreds, even, praise God, occasionally 
in South Wales, for example, in their thousands, people turn back to God. How does this happen? The Roman centurion in this story gives us a clue as to how people might break out of their institutions. I want us to take a second just to consider what it means to be a Roman centurion. When I stop to, th- I have a picture in my mind when I think about this guy, and it's just, it's like, it's, occasionally, I, well, quite often I get man envy. I look at another guy and I think, oh, I wish I could be more masculine or more smart or have a better hairline or whatever, <laughs> whatever else it is. And I look at the Roman centurion and I think, this, this guy, to be a Roman centurion, you lead from the front. You're at the fr- if you're in battle, you lead from the front. If you're a Roman centurion, you imbibe and embody the spirit of Rome. I found a quote by a, a Roman historian. His name is Vegetus, his fourth century Roman historian. He describes what Roman life was like and what kind of mentality a Roman soldier might have. Here's the quote. We find that Romans owed the conquest of the world to no other cause than continual military training, exact, exact observance of discipline in their camps, and unwearied cultivation of the arts of war. This, if, you're, if you're a Roman centurion, this Roman centurion, he is, you know, he is switched on. He wakes up, he's switched on Rome, institutionalized Rome. He wakes up in the morning and he looks at his armor and he thinks about how he can glorify Rome. He falls asleep on his pillow at night and he thinks about the villa that he hopefully will inherit in this golden city, in the eternal city one day. Rome is just flowing, coursing through his bones. On his coin, on his, in his pocket, there's a coin that talks about, it says, Tiberius Caesar, the divine, the divine son of the divine Augustus, he's got this coin in his pocket that would say, Caesar is like a god. This is the the guy, this is the guy who watches over Jesus as he dies. This is the guy whose remit it is. So he's the centurion, he's in charge of the show. It's his show. And they're pretty serious about death, the Romans. So he's got his eyes on the whole event. Then the Bible records this for us. This This is the kind of key verse in this passage the Roman centurion watches, maybe we have the text up, the Roman centurion watches Jesus die, and then there's an outcome. He's got his eye on the whole thing. Jesus, arrested in the middle of the night, questioned, accused, beaten up. The Roman centurion's watching the whole thing, and he sees Jesus in this moment. He sees him not saying a word. He's dragged up a hill, he's pierced, he's punctured. He's abused. He's got nails in his hands. And he asks for forgiveness for everyone. The centurion, this all-powerful dude, this man who seems to have life and death in his hands, the man who would seem to have total authority in this moment, this man who kind of has the weight of Rome on his shoulders, he's not going to turn his back on his Caesar. This man with the rhythm of Rome cursing through his bones in total authority over the moment. Yet, as Jesus in front of him just gets weaker and weaker and less and less until death. His assessment of the situation is unbelievably, surely, this is the Son 
of God. And in saying that, he sneaks out the back door of his institution. Or maybe he gets kicked out the back door of his institution. He kind of says to himself, well, I've seen a lot. I've seen death. I've seen people die in the name of a good cause. I've never, ever seen anything like this. This is what the cross does. This is where we're going to start. This is what the cross does. I think everybody, everybody around at this time is waiting for a power show. All the people, after people following Jesus are waiting for a power show. If you're, going to, if you're going to stir a revolt, if you're going to be worth following at all, you're going to need an empire behind you. Everybody's waiting for this. And yet the story of the cross is not a power show. It's a story of a man who has power, but because of love, he's able to give it all away. And because, because that's the story, I think because that's the story, the institutionalized Roman gets to see who God is. He sees a man die for the sake of love. He says, I've never seen that before. And in that moment, here's the thing, in that moment, he sees God. Not seen him before. Just observing Jesus get less and less, and he sees God. This is why the cross is good news. Because it can reach, hang on to this, it can reach anyone. We live in a time where, and I could be wrong, you grab hold of me afterwards, if you, you might say that it's always, you know, it's always been like, it's always been the same. I would say the, insti- the institutions that we live in at the moment and the patterns of our lives that we live in at the moment direct us away from God just in an incredibly powerful way and yet we can rejoice because this, can, this is not a story of a man raising an empire, it's not a story of a man raising a sword. We've seen all these stories but we've never seen a story like this. So it can take, and this is why it brings a joy, and maybe you're praying for, maybe you're praying for somebody, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're working out, but maybe you're praying for somebody to, to find joy in this story. It can take somebody who would look like they've got no opportunities to find in faith. They're so institutionalized. They're so directed away from God. It can take that person, and because it's a love story, they can look at the cross, and they can never, ever be the same again. It's real hope. I love the idea. I don't know if you were... You won't be able to remember right back to episode one of the gospel strip back. We talk about how Mark had in mind the people of Rome, the Christians of Rome. Remember the Christians of Rome? These, you've seen the movies that are on Channel 5 all the time, these Christians getting thrown into the lion's den, this horror that was happening there. I love the idea of these people, these terrified Christian, Christians huddled in corners, reading Mark's gospel from start to finish reading through it, still terrified, and getting to the end, and then finding out that this centurion sees God through this act of love. And they look at that story, and maybe like us, they go, man, if he, if he can see God, then anything's possible. That's the hope that we have today. Hope number one, anything is possible, but there's a rub for us as I don't know if we're all Christians, but if you're a Christian in here, there's a, there's a rub because we see God. How do we see him? We see him. How does, how does he, he show himself to us? Let's think about that. I get, I get asked quite often, comes up quite often. People will come up and like, as the conversation's going about faith and how we should kind of be living and all that kind of thing, somebody will say to me, how, how can I show people God? I want to 
you know, like with, and like with sincerity, they'll go like, I want to reach, reach more people. How can I show people God? And they'll say stuff like, well, I keep telling them to come along to church and I keep telling them to read their Bible and I keep telling them to stop swearing and doing this and that and the other. But like, how can I get them to reach, to really, how can I be God to people? How can people look at me and, and see God in that way? And we've got to kind of hang on to this and really think through this story really carefully. When God chooses to reveal himself to the world, when God wants to make himself known to everybody, how does he do it? He comes as, he comes from the glory of heaven, abandons everything, and comes as a baby. Because we're going to remember in a couple of weeks' time, the Christmas story, it doesn't doesn't get any more humbling than that. Purposefully, I think. Christ comes and, and herods after him straight away. And wanting to kill all the firstborn. It's, it's like, it's humble. Christ reveals, God reveals himself humbly. Jesus lives out his life, doesn't have any pennies to rub together, doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. Doesn't, as he goes through his ministry, he's got nothing. It's humble. And as he dies, everything that he has is taken away on purpose. And we see a man made humble. Here's the rub for us, I think. I think. Lots of ways we can display God's likeness, I guess, but through this passage, what do we see? I guess we can be as Ned Flanders-esque, Simpsons reference, as, you know, we can be as the best Holy Joes we can know our Bibles inside out, and I guess we can show people religion and traditions and stuff like that, or maybe we can show more, but if we want to show them God, if we want to break into their institutions, if that's our business, then what should we do? Show them the selfless love of Christ. And everyone goes, oh man. That's how people see God. That's how this Roman who was institutionalized broke free of his institution. He saw God through a selfless act. Speaks to all of us. That's point number one. The cross is good news because it transforms institutionalized humans. Point number two, the cross is good news. Builds, hopefully. The cross is good news because it transforms institutionalized humans into ministers of mercy. So we move on to Joseph of Arimathea, the next guy. It takes us on a step. It doesn't just grab us. It grabs us and does something with us. Joseph of Arimathea. So let's just catch up really briefly on him. He's in, he's in an institution as well. It's not a Roman institution. It's not the same kind of institution that we're in. He's in a Jewish, the Jewish institution. He's, you know, read a bit more about him. He's got a seat on the council. He's, got a, he's in a good spot. He knows where his bread's buttered. That's a, is that a Yorkshire expression? That's an expression that we're using. He know, he's, he's got a safe seat, and he exists in this world, and all his friends are knocking about, and he, he's, this is his world. This is his comfort zone. And he's reading between the lines. He's into Jesus, but at the moment, he's pre-cross. He's terrified. He's terrified of what the rest of his mates are going to see. He's terrified of, of losing his position and all that sort of stuff, but he's into him. Uh, John, who writes about this as well, John's Gospel, um, it's 1938-40, if you want to look it up later on. He gives us a bit more insight onto, onto how this all pans out. So He says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders... With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. You maybe are familiar with Nicodemus. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. 
Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds. I don't know. That sounds like a lot. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And we, so let's just, these two guys together. And it, so I think it just helps us paint the picture a little bit. But remember the story of Nicodemus? He goes to see Jesus at night. Why does he go and see him at night? Because he's scared. He's into him. And at the same time, reading between the lines, you go, he's he's. He's impressed by his miracles. He's, he sees that he's something different. He's coming under his teaching. He's, um, Mark uses the, the terminology of a disciple. He's there, but it's all a bit of a secret. He chooses the safe seat. But would you notice with me the way that the cross changes things? See how it changes things. Mark says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly, underlined for my head, boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. There's a, there's a change. Boldness. It's not in secret anymore. He comes, and you've got to think about what, because I've given him a bit of a slagging by telling him he's taking the safe seat, but you've got to think about what he's going to lose in this moment. Do you know what I mean? He goes before the Roman emperor. So he's, he annoys everybody in Rome, but not just everybody in Rome. He's annoyed all his Jewish pals too because he's, he's gone and done an honorable thing to this man, Jesus. This is, this is, this is social suicide. This is, this, is a big, this is a big change for him, but he's found his mojo. Do you know what I mean? That's the right expression. He's, he's got onto it and he's gone emboldened. Not secretively anymore, but emboldened. That's the first change. But there's another change. Because there's a change happening in him. And the cross is the, the reason for the change. He takes, and this, you've got to imagine him. If you're, if you're Joseph of Arimathea, if you've got a seat on the Jewish council, if you're a Jewish leader, maybe you've seen in some of the films, Passion of the Christ, the people scoffing at Jesus on the cross. They've got all the finery on. He's got all the finery. He's looking like a fine man. And he goes... And this is the other thing he does, and you can follow, trace the story in the text. He takes the body of Jesus, dead body, corpse, you know, cut to bits, not a nice job, takes it down off the cross, takes it away, and him and Nicodemus, the man who was terrified, the pair of them terrified, the pair of them empowered, the pair of them with title, with position, wash the body of Jesus now. That's not what these kind of people do. These kind of jobs are for the slaves. And excuse me having to reference different times, but the women. That's what they did. These fellas wouldn't get their hands dirty like this. These fellas wouldn't go near anything like this. And yet, because of the cross, in this moment, there is a change happening. They get their hands dirty. They humble themselves. Notice the changes. These men are... And here's the... Here's what I want to pan out. These men are emboldened, and yet they are humble. They change from being scared, like false, really not following their own, the courage of their own convictions. Men of position, they change from, from that to become emboldened and confident, and yet humble at the same time. Keller, uh, Tim Keller, a guy who I read all the time, described it as, uh, the most masculine and feminine thing anybody can do at the same time. It's like the strongest and weakest. It's the most confident going before Pilate and the most humble thing 
that you can do both together at the same time. This is what the cross is. Now, an example from my life of how that works out for me. Humility and cockiness. I've had, looking back, hopefully I'm a pastor, I ought to have at least a level of humility in me. But looking back over my life, I could chart it to when I've seen a car crash or when I've watched something terribly sad on TV. I have these moments of humility, real sort of moments of humility, and then they come and go. And I can, you could sort of look back and you go, oh, there I was humbled. Yeah, that, that would be the terminology. Humbled there, and then it went away. And I've had that, but it's certainly never there when I'm cocky and bold. The more cockier and bold I get, the less, you know what I mean? It's like balancing. The, the, less, the less humble I am. Just, it just sort of seeps out of me, and I become cocky, annoying, and, and arrogant. And yet what happens in this story, because of the cross, you've got this man who has both. He's like a hybrid guy. It's just like he's got everything. And this is what the cross does. What does Jesus say over and over again? The Bible says it over and over again, and people quote Jesus. God lifts up the humble and tears down the proud. What does, what does he do? And you kind of look at it, and I've sort of always read this and thought, yeah, the proud, they're going to get what's coming. That's what's going to happen. Yeah, good, go on, God. You sort them all out. And sort of looking over my shoulder at other people. That's, not what, that's, not, that's probably what will happen a little bit, but that's not all that's happening. God is balancing through the act of the cross. He's going to balance us out. Humble people be, be lifted up. Proud people be pulled down. And all of a sudden, what you've got is somebody who is able to serve. This is what's happened to Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They are empowered by the cross, but they are forever humbled by it too. It's like, it's like almost for the first time, just for point of emphasis, it reads to me like the first time that Joseph of Arimathea really lives I tried to think of a better expression than this because it, it's got other connotations, but it feels to me like it becomes a player. So you know there's other connotations with the word player, but it feels to me like for the first time in his life, he is significant on the planet. He is a force for good. And he can change things because he's become somebody who is balanced. He's humble and he's emboldened, and it's the cross that has done that. I say this, or I dwell on this, because the world that we live in, this brilliant, awesome, lovely world that we see, isn't actually that brilliant and awesome. It's terribly unjust. There's what I would say are the marks of sin everywhere. And what, what this world needs Sincerely, I think what this world needs is for Christians, for us lot, to not just be pre-cross Joseph where we're secret Christians and to not be like Ned Flanders, puffed up with pride Christians, false humility Christians. The world needs us to be significant players. The world needs people who can deliver peace. The world needs to see the story of the cross, and it needs people who have seen the story of the cross to be life-changing players.
That's point one, point two. The cross transforms institutionalized people into ministers of mercy. Here's the last point, because it's true. The cross transforms institutionalized people into ministers of mercy because it's a true story. This is the last group, and it's the best group of people. And they're there right throughout the story, this group of women, this brilliant group of women. There's only, only one of the groups of people that are present right throughout. And there's, there's lots of, and I can beat up on the fellas for a second. The fellas say all the way through, you remember what Peter says? I'll never leave you or forsake you, and he's gone along with all the rest of them. They've all gone, and, and any time I watch like The Passion or any of these sort of films, you see these, these women, different backgrounds, changed by meeting Jesus, and they are loyal and faithful to the end, and they don't leave him. And they stay there, even when the might of the Roman army are hanging their saviour on a cross. And it's dark, and it's awful. These women stay there. And you look at the story, and it's kind of like, there's a lot of commentators a lot of great scholars who read through the story of Mark and they're really happy that, this, that the story of Mark, and I'll leave you to make up your own minds, that the story of Mark ends with the, with the last verse in our, in our text, with these women running away, scared and confused, but as witnesses. There's a lot of, com- of scholars that be really happy with that. And you look at this text, and one of the questions you've got to ask yourself is why, why does Mark choose these women as the only people who connect this story. So if you look back through the story, it's only, if without this group of women, there's no connection to the resurrection for any of the rest of us. These women are the reporters that he used. And in these times, different times, we've still not grasped equality, but in these different times, a woman, you know, couldn't vote, couldn't get, I don't think could even get a divorce, but they certainly couldn't be a, a witness. Their words were worth nothing in the court of law in these times, and yet Mark uses them as the only witnesses of the resurrection for some people. Why would you include, why would you include these women? The only reason you would include these women is if, is if this story was true. This story is true. The resurrection is a true story. I had, I was humbled when I got the opportunity to interview a guy called uh, David Cook. He's the principal of, uh, was the principal of Sydney Bible College, and I was away at the Keswick Convention. I had a chance to interview him, and I, I, I wanted to be a smart aleck. I thought I'll have some really good questions, and I'll become this cool guy who gets to, you know, interviews this guy really well. And I asked him, why do you do all this, David? Why do you, you know, why do you travel around the world? And he, he answered me in the, this really cool, he's an older Australian guy, like 75 years old guy, just destroyed me. It's the resurrection, mate, is what he, what he said to me. It's the resurrection, mate. And he built, and he went on for about five minutes. If the resurrection really happened, then it's all worth it. Is that still Australian? <laughs> Don't do accents. Don't do accents. This. If the resurrection really happened, then everything's worth it, and it changes everything. And we, like we go through so much of our lives, kind of, Struggling along with our Christianity, and we'll sort of go, I'm not, I'm not 100% happy with how God looks in the Bible here. I'm not 100% happy what he, how he asks me to live and how he asks me to be and what it means for me to, to be a Christian. But the thing is, if, if the resurrection's true, 
and it's true, and it kind of doesn't really matter where our journey is, how we're struggling. If the resurrection happens, then we've just got to read the book and do everything that it says, and it's life-changing. And that's the gospel stripped back.